Is this thing on? There we go. Good morning, Docs Church. Guys, it is uh, good to, to see you guys. We're going to get right to work today. So grab your Bible and find your way to Mark chapter 9, the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. If you guys are, are new, we haven't had a chance to meet yet. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you part of the, the family of, of Doxa today, but you are in fact joining us in the midst of a study through this great historical text uh, of, of Mark, okay? And as we've been journeying through this ancient text, what we're doing is we're studying a period of history that happened and occurred around 2,000 years ago, and it's all specifically around the man Jesus Christ. And, you know, as I've been thinking about this as the Bible as like a, a history, right, and, and looking at Mark's history and really just kind of thinking about the storyline of, of, of the Bible as a whole, you know, one of the things that has stood out to me this past week is that, guys, it is just filled with highs and lows, right? It's just filled with peaks and valleys, that there's times of like greatness and joy and celebration, and then right after that, there's discouragement, there's despair, there's, there's helplessness and sadness. And guys, this is just the truth of life, right? I mean, it's just filled with ups and downs, peaks and valleys. We all go through it, and if you haven't had that experience, that just means you haven't been alive long enough, okay? So, but this is the story of every single one of our lives. It's all of our lives are most definitely marked with peaks and valleys, highs and lows. And then if you just think about it, okay, you, you finally graduate college, right? You're through with all the papers, you're through with all the tuition and all the professors, all the classes, all that stuff. You have a big party, you get the diploma in your hand, and then you can't find a job, right? And you struggle financially, you're in your parents' basement, your dating game is struggling, it's not going well, and you're just struggling, right? Or you get married, and you have this huge, big party, an amazing wedding night, a crazy good honeymoon, and then you get back and you're like, wow, this is hard, right? You're like, it's really difficult to lock yourself in a house with another sinful, broken person, and all of a sudden, you're feeling like lonely and helpless and hurt. Or you have a child, or you're getting ready, you get pregnant, right, after years of trying. And you're so excited. You have the gender reveal. You have the, the party where you get all the gifts and all those th different things. And then all of a sudden you get the news that there are major complications. And you just feel powerless and completely out of control. Or for our older brothers and sisters in here, you get to retirement, right? And you got these plans to travel the world and go on all these things with your spouse and you want to move down south and drink Mai Tais all day and share the gospel with the bartenders, right? And all these different things. And then all of a sudden, cancer comes. And all those, planes, or all those plans are just radically shifted. Guys, life is a journey of peaks and valleys. And when we're at the peak, we're energized, right? We, we feel alive. We're filled with hope, we're filled with like expectation, and it's just great. But what happens when we hit that valley? When kind of real life just like smacks you in the face, when you experience hardships? Have you been there? I mean, probably there's, in a room this size, there's some of you that are, you're in it right now. But how does your perspective and your joy and your hope and your expectations change when you find yourself in that valley? Because here's what I love about where we're going to be at today in Mark chapter 9. We're going to see a major peak moment, this mountaintop moment for the disciples of Jesus, one of the most significant in the history of the world. But what we're going to see is that peak is then immediately followed by a valley. 
with experiences in life when it's just down in the valley. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at both of these situations. We're gonna look at this peak moment, we're gonna look at the valley moment, and we're gonna learn a lot about Jesus and who he is and what he does in our lives and how we can live with this like peak type comfort and power when we're living the everyday life in the valley, okay? So we're gonna start in Mark chapter nine, verse two. And here is what we see. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. So this is God's word to us. We, we really believe that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for us. There's a lot in here that we can learn about the greatness and the glory of Jesus. But here is where we're at, okay? Peter, if you remember back to last week, the leader of the disciples, he just made the massive statement that Jesus is the Christ, that the Son of God, right? That Jesus asked them, hey, who does everybody say that I am? And Jesus and Peter and the disciples are like, here's what everybody's saying. And then Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus, in response to this, he says, and we see this in Matthew chapter 16, Peter, you're blessed. And Jesus goes on to say that this statement, this confession is what he is going to build the church upon. And right after that, Jesus starts talking about not just his identity, but what he's going to do as the Messiah, the Christ, come. And he says that he's going to suffer, he's going to be rejected, he's going to die, and then he's going to rise again. And the disciples were confused by this. They're like kind of hearing it. They're like, I don't know if I understand what you're talking about. I don't know if I want this to happen. But Jesus then says, this must all happen. And this is where we find Jesus now. Right after this, he's taking some of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. These are his closest friends. These are the leaders of the disciples. He's going up a high mountain. And when we look at the geography of this area, we discover that this is, in fact, Mount Hermon. All right? And Mount Hermon is little over 9,000 feet tall, and it stands as like the highest place in this region. Okay, So really, in this moment, what we have is we have Jesus with his disciples, and they are on top of the world. They're on the top of the world with Jesus at this point. And as they go up to this high place, guys, if you, if you think about it, and even if you look at Luke's account of this in, in Luke 9, I think it's possible that Jesus is just going up there to escape the crowds. Right? We've been watching this unfold throughout the first eight chapters of Mark, that the crowds and the multitudes, they're just coming around Jesus. They're pressing in on him continually. And if you're familiar with your Bible, Throughout the Gospels, it tells us clearly many different times that Jesus would oftentimes just withdraw to lonely places and he would just pray. That if you look at the rhythms and the lifestyle of, of Jesus, that he would oftentimes pour himself out in ministry and then he would pull himself out of ministry to be refreshed and to go to the Father and to pray and to be encouraged. And I just need you to see this, okay, Doxa? Guys, Jesus made it a habit to withdraw to lonely places to pray. And as he would do this, 
He would be encouraged by the Father, empowered by the Father, refreshed by the Father. And in Luke chapter nine, which is the parallel account to this, it actually said that as they went up there, Jesus was there praying. The disciples are falling asleep, they're hot, they're tired, 9,000 feet, long trip, right? And, but Jesus is sitting there and he's praying. And guys, here's what I'll tell you. You need that. You absolutely need that. And I know this runs contrary to just our culture in our society and even like some of you guys here that you're like, I don't need to stop. I'll rest when I die. You need this. I need this. Jesus needed this. Because we need to have this rhythm in our lives so that we can meet with God and be filled with the spirit of God and be filled with the love of God so that when we are going out living for and with God that we can actually give away the love of God to the people around us whom he loves. This has to be a regular rhythm of our lives. And this is exactly what Jesus is modeling for us here. It's silence, solitude, and prayer, just time with the Father. And, and I'll tell you, guys, this is one of the reasons why we incorporate these rhythms or trying to incorporate these rhythms of prayer into the life of our church. Like Katie was just up here announcing that we're having these summer prayer nights, because I want you to actually know this isn't because we were like bored. All right, it's not be like, well, we aren't doing anything on Wednesday nights, so maybe we should just have everybody come out and do this, right? It's not because of that. Because we think that prayer is actually a gift and that prayer is actually where the action is. And that prayer is where we experience the presence and the power of God to push us through and encourage us as we walk through the valleys of life. And to be honest with you, I'm, I'm eager to continue to learn as a church family what it means to be a praying people. Because I think we're starting to see the value of it, but I don't know how many of us would actually be like, you know, I, I think that I am a person of prayer. And it's because we're so individualistic and we look internally, and we're gonna see this with the disciples here. But if you look back, Mark tells us that they're on the top of the mountain with Jesus, and then Jesus is transfigured in front of his disciples. All right, and this word transfigured is from the verb metamorpheo, which literally means metamorphosis. And so we've learned about this in, in ki kindergarten, probably, or elementary school, right? When we looked at caterpillars going through the metamorphosis process and turning into a butterfly. You guys remember that? You tracking with me? No? I'm not going to explain it anymore, so that's all you get, okay? But it's a change. There, there's a change happening. And so when Jesus is transfigured, is that it was that he had a change in his appearance. That the disciples in this moment, they didn't just see a poor homeless guy. They saw the glory of God burst through this man. And in this moment, they didn't just see Jesus as a man, but they saw Jesus as divine. And if you look back, Mark says that a, a cloud just overshadowed them and they saw the glory of God. Now, guys, I need to briefly explain this to you because this is a really significant thing, a really big deal, okay? If you remember back several months ago to our study in, through the book of Daniel, we, we learned of Jesus the, the son of man, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself, the son of man. This is pointing back to Daniel and his prophecy, but we see Daniel as he prophesies about the son of man who is Jesus. He's coming for a second time, and this is the day that we long for, right? The time where Jesus will come back and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that sin and sadness and suffering, all of that will be gone, amen? This is the day that we wait for. But until that day, we, we kind of long, but it says that Jesus, the son of man, is going to come on the clouds of glory. You guys remember this? Because these are ways in which the Bible 
is indicating us to us the glory of God is being revealed to the people of God. And so things that we see like in the Bible of like fire and clouds, it's indicative of the glory of God being revealed to the people of God. And when you, when you listen and you look to just kind of ancient Jewish rabbis, they would talk about this and they would use language now, that's not necessarily found in the Bible, but when they would talk about the glory of God coming, they would use the language of Shekinah glory. All right, and again, you maybe have heard this if you've grown up in the church, you've probably, there's probably songs with this, but Shekinah glory, while it's not language that's used in the scriptures, they would use this to kind of demonstrate how God's glory would come, that God would come and he would show himself as the glorious one, and Shekinah glory means that we have seen God in his glory, that he's made himself manifest and invisible to us. And in these moments, it's a cloud just enveloping God's people, or it's a fire like leading God's people. And the glory of God is first spoken of in this way as we look at the book of Exodus. But here, guys, in Mark chapter 9, it's been 600 years since the glory of the Lord has been revealed to the people of the Lord. 600 years. But here, on this mountain, with this poor, homeless dude, born of this teenage girl from the middle of nowhere, the glory of the Lord burst through the man Jesus Christ. It's the glory of the Lord that we're seeing in Jesus. And I need you to understand, guys, that this is how Jesus existed in eternity past. See, when you think about Jesus, all right, you just need to be careful not to solely think of him as his incarnate self walking humbly to the cross. Okay? So we can see that, but when we only see Jesus in that way, as a man, we actually miss out on who he truly is. Because Jesus is not just a man, but he's fully man and he's fully God. And I, and I know this can be complicated, so I just want to try and explain this just really quickly because it's so important, but hear me on this, okay? Jesus is the eternal God. I need you to hear that. Chances are there's, there's some of you, you've, you've grown up and you're here, this is new to you, you're newer to church, you're newer to the Bible, you've heard of Jesus being a good guy or whatever. Jesus is in fact the eternal God. And he said it openly and publicly and emphatically throughout his life and this is in fact why he was killed. But Jesus, he lives without beginning or end as the creator God in perfect communion with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. That we have one God who exists in three persons. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of glory, the one true God. And the storyline of creation, the storyline of history and the Bible is that God in his glory, in perfect communion and communication with the Father, Son, and the Spirit, that God creates. He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates everything that we see and we don't see. And then he creates humanity, the pinnacle of his creation. In his image, in his likeness, male and female, he created them. So we have all of us, every single person, regardless of what people believe and how people act, every single person in this world has dignity, value, worth, and purpose because they carry the image of God. God has created us. But we know the story. God created us not just to enjoy relationship, but hear this to radiate his glory. That's humanity. 
that much like the, the moon radiates the glory of the sun and shines, like the moon doesn't produce light on its own, God, as we as human beings, we don't produce any type of light and glory on our own, but we were created to radiate the glory of God. But we know the story. Sin comes in, it ruins everything. We continue to sin today. That every single one of us, if we were just honest, guys, we, we, we want glory for ourselves. We don't want glory for God. This is sin. That we all do things that we shouldn't and we don't do the things that we should and this is every single one of our stories. The Bible just calls, calls this sin and sin really just separates us from God. And if this separation is not fixed, if it's not mediated, if it's not closed, this separation will go on forever, for eternity, through the grave, into the next life, which is the terrible reality of hell. But hear this, and I love this. In the midst of this, God makes a promise. He makes a promise to the sinful, broken, rebellious, stiff-necked people that I so oftentimes am, and so are you. And he makes a promise to these people that he loves. It's ultimately a promise for you that he would one day come as savior, savior of the world, and he would love us, and he would forgive us, and he would redeem us, and guys, this is Jesus Christ. But hear me on this, okay? Before Jesus comes in humility to seek us and to serve us and to save us, he previously exists in glory as he rules. And if you remember back, I mean, this was a while back to Philippians, our study in Philippians. In Philippians chapter two, this is what the apostle Paul talks about, where he says that Jesus humbled himself. And what that means is that Jesus, he, he set aside his rights to be worshiped and obeyed in glory. And so Jesus, he didn't lose any of his divinity in that moment, but what he did is he added to it humanity to identify with us as sinful, as broken, as human. And so he could be our, our mediator and our savior. And so Jesus is fully God and he's fully man come to save us for our sin. Now, I wanna just say, guys, this is the most important thing you can learn here at Doxa. Hands down. If you're newer to our church, we are not really concerned and primarily interested in helping you live a better life. We're not really concerned with helping you be a better person and to stop sleeping with your girlfriend and doing all that. We're not primarily concerned all right, with you kind of being a better steward of your money. We're not primarily concerned with you becoming very philanthropic and you start to serve and start to giving away different things. We're not really concerned with that. Those are all great. But guys, we are most concerned and we are most focused on you meeting Jesus in glory. All right? And this is really the ultimate central message of this book. All right, this is not just a moralistic book trying to teach you how to live a better life and to get God to love you. This is a book that's all about Jesus. He's the hero of the story. Every page, every chapter, every book points us to Jesus. And the whole point of this book is so that we can have our eyes open and to see Jesus in his glory. And so I would just say this, guys, if you do not know Jesus, I would encourage you, don't get wrapped up in church life and religion and start thinking about a bunch of rules. Pray that you would see Jesus. You need Jesus above every single thing in this world. Above anyone in this world, you need Jesus. Sin is very real. Jesus will come back. 
And if you're standing there alone with your sin on that day, it will be the worst day of your life. And this whole thing exists so that we could have an opportunity to teach you about Jesus. He loves you. He's the suffering servant. He's our savior of our sin. Come to him. You need to come to him today. He's everything. But as you think about Jesus, okay, I, I want you to think about him in eternity past in glory. And then he comes in humility. And in this moment in Mark 9, the glory of Jesus Christ is made manifest. Okay, it's made visible. And then if you look back to verse 4, all right, we see Jesus, and he's there in glory, but then Moses and Elijah show up out of nowhere, okay? And I don't understand, like, how the disciples knew this was Moses and Elijah. Maybe they had, like, a lanyard or a jersey with a name on it. I really don't know. But he just shows up, and they somehow know that this is Moses and Elijah. And at this point, okay, Moses and Elijah, they've been dead for a very long time. But as we look at these two people, there's something really significant to understand here, okay? Moses and Elijah are really significant in the story of God. Right? Moses, for example, is the one whom God uses to give us the law, All right, the Ten Commandments. And so here on this mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses represents the law. Now Elijah, standing there with him and Jesus, represents the prophets of the Old Testament. All right, that Elijah was one of the greatest Old Testament prophets that God used to lead people and to point people of the world to the coming promised Savior and Messiah. And so with these two guys that are standing alongside Jesus, we have the law and the prophets coming together. And here's what you need to know. The law and the prophets are all about Jesus. They point us to Jesus. And so in this moment, we're seeing what Jesus says. Here, take a look. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says this. He says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Rather, I've come to fulfill them. And so the law and the prophets are about Jesus. The law shows us how sinful and broken and hopeless we are because we can't live it out perfectly. You know that? I know some of you, you, you try really hard to be a really great person. You're never going to be good enough. Every single one of us falls short of the holy requirement of God. But in the midst of our inability to live out this, Jesus comes in and he steps into the human story. He lives without sin. And he lives the life that I couldn't live. He lives the absolute perfect life so that the law doesn't have the final word of condemnation but that Jesus has the final word of salvation and he says it is finished. And this is the message of the prophets, that because of Jesus' identity as Christ and God, we can repent of sin, we can trust in him, and we can receive his righteousness and his grace and his forgiveness as an ultimate gift because he is perfect and he fulfills the law of God. This was the message of the prophets and this is the most important message, guys, that you can know. And here's where I'm at, okay? I woke up yesterday to find out that one of my good friends just suddenly died. And, I, and I, I was sitting there on my bed, barely awake, and I felt the sting of death. I, I, don't, I don't know where he stands with Jesus. And, and sure, when I became a Christian, he was part of the athletic department, 
and I had shared the gospel with him, but I didn't, and it's been years since we've seen each other face to face, but we communicate every now and again. He lives, he was the head athletic trainer at Purdue. We're planting a church there this fall, and I had plans to come and to bring him and his family to church and to invite them to meet the pastor and his wife because they're awesome. And yesterday, I just, there's something just sobering. You, you feel that? When you're confronted with death, this is why Jesus is such good news. And this is what the prophets would sow. This is what you need. And so here in this glorious moment, all right, the law and the prophets come to be with Jesus in the person of Moses and the prophet Isaiah. But if you look back to verses five and six, here's our boy Peter again, okay? And Peter, he doesn't know what to say, and so he just says something stupid and crazy. You know, so he just blurts out, hey Jesus, it's great that I'm here. Let me build you a tent. In fact, I'll, breathe, I'll build three tents for you so we can just camp out here, right? Just totally random. Like, this is like this great moment, and Peter's like, I'm gonna run to Walmart real quick, get a couple tents, I'll get a propane grill, we can camp out up here, it's great, we'll start our own connection group, I'm usually the leader, but maybe I'll let you do it, this, I mean, you guys are kind of big deal, right? Like, it's just weird, right? And there's a few different ways that we can see this moment, all right? That I think it's actually possible that in this moment, like, Peter was just wanting to stay on top of that mountain with Jesus forever. I mean, just think about this. He's seeing the glory of God. There's no crazy people. There's no crowds. There's no demon-possessed people up there. It's just like him and Moses and, Eli- Moses and Elijah and the disip- couple of the disciples. And he's probably just thinking like, man, how awesome would it be if I could just stay up here with Jesus forever? Maybe Peter's thinking that. I would venture to say that there may be a decent number of people in this room that have that same posture. That many Christians just want to exist in a place where it's just them and Jesus and the Bible and everybody who loves Jesus and the Bible and loves to sing Maverick City worship songs and all of this stuff. And if it could just be us in this little bubble on top of the mountain, man, that would be amazing. It would be, except for the fact that this is a picture that's not even close to the words, the works, and the ways of Jesus. You understand that? That Jesus came to be around people who didn't know God, who hated God, who's far from God so he can give them the good news of God. And if Jesus would have just camped out up there on the top of the mountain with Peter and Elijah and Moses, no one else would have met him and have been helped by him. And so Christian, please hear me on this. If you really love Jesus, you will go for Jesus to the people who need Jesus, that Jesus loves. Because it's like the pinnacle of hatred to come in here and raise your hand and to thank God for saving you for sin and then to walk out of this place and never open your mouth and tell the people around you what you just found. We go, just like our Jesus. This is how people will get the gospel. 
It's not this. People don't care about what's happening in this room, in this building today. Occasionally they care with the jump nights, but that's a different thing, right? It's the people of God going. And so that's one way that we can think about this. But here's what I think is actually more accurate, okay? The word translated as tents is actually the Greek word for tabernacle, okay? So if you remember and you know your Bible, if you think back to like Exodus 34 and 35, you remember this scene where Moses is on Mount Sinai and the glory of the Lord passes through him. Moses, his face is shining. Do you remember what happens? He comes down off the mountain. The people of God, the Jews, they see Moses and then immediately they set up a tent. They set up a tabernacle. Now again, you might hear that and be like, okay, yeah, that's just what people did. We have to ask why. All right, why did they set up this tabernacle when Moses came off after encountering the glory of God? Because here's what you need to know. All right, there's a man named Timothy Keller. He points out that, the most, that most religions have recognized that there is a wide gap between deity and humanity. And that's why if you look at many different religions throughout the world, they have uh, temples and tabernacles and they have priests and they have sacrifices and they have rituals to transform your consciousness or to take away your sin. And so to mediate that gap between people and God, and really they set up these tabernacles and these tents and these temples to really just protect human beings from the divine presence of God, which would kill us. And so if you think about it like that, what Peter is saying is he is saying, oh my gosh, here's the glory of God. We need a tabernacle. We need to set up spiritual rituals. We need to set up something that's gonna protect us from the presence of God so we don't die. And he says, let me build some tents. But immediately, look at verse seven. As soon as he says this, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And so they're in the immediate presence of God and they do not die. Now we ask, how could that be? How could it be? Now look at verse eight. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them. And I want you to circle this, underline this, highlight this in your Bible, but Jesus only. Doc said, this is Mark's way of saying, Moses is gone, Elijah is gone, and Jesus is the only bridge over the gap between God and humanity. This is Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That Jesus is able to give what Moses and Elijah could not. Jesus can give what no one else can give. That through Jesus, we don't have to fear sin and death because he is God, our Savior, and his grace is great. And Jesus is the tent or the tabernacle to end all tabernacles because he is the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. And when we hear, when these people hear the voice of God say in verse seven, listen to him. Circle that in your Bible. Listen to him. God the Father breaks in in this moment and he speaks and he says, listen to the son. Listen to the Lord Jesus. Doxa Church, don't listen to religion. Don't listen to false teachers, don't listen to culture, don't listen to anyone who would confuse you on the identity and the activity of Jesus. The Father is saying, listen to the Lord Jesus. And guys, this is what we do as a church. And, and really, this is what we try and teach you to do as a Christian, is that you go to Jesus. 
before you go to anyone and before you listen to anyone, you go to Jesus and you listen to him. We just open up our Bibles and hear his words and we listen to him above every single person, every single voice in this world. And I don't know what you guys think that I try and do when I have a stage like this on a Sunday, all right, but this is not me getting up here and giving you like a 40 minute hot take by Rob thing, okay? I'm not that talented, I don't know that many things. All I do is I seek to get up here by the grace of God and open up the word and just say here's what God says and by his grace try and be accurate and honoring enough to help us. This is what we do, Christian, this is what we need. There are so many voices in our world today. There's so much noise. Hear the Father say, listen to him. And in this moment, guys, the cloud lifts, if you look back, and it's just the three disciples and Jesus in glory, and the disciples are just in awe and wonder. And I want you to see this as James and and Peter and John, they just experienced worship. They experienced worship on this mountain. They're on the top of the world with Jesus. This was a peak moment that these men, as they walked forward, they will write about and they will teach about as they look back on this moment with Jesus. And I want you to hear this, guys, as they experienced the glory of Jesus and worshiped, all right, this would serve to empower them for what was ahead. Because do you know that when we worship, whether it's through prayer, whether it's through song, whether it's through reading, whether it's through confessing sin, whatever, when we worship, it's not just that God is honored and glorified, but it's that we are empowered and helped by his presence. You understand that? And so worship is attributing value and worth to Jesus, but we actually get some benefit in this because we meet the presence of God and he empowers us for what's ahead of us. And this is what happened with these disciples. Look at verse 9 as they start moving into the valley. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matters to themselves, questioning what was rising from the dead meant, and they asked him, why do the scribes say the first Elijah must come? And then they said, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of them. And so as they're coming down the mountain, Jesus tells his disciples, don't tell anybody about what you see until I raise from the dead. And the disciples, they obey him, but they start to question, like what did Jesus actually mean? And the truth is is that they see, but they don't really see, and they're not gonna fully see and understand this until they see Jesus alive after his crucifixion. But as the disciples are questioning the role of Elijah and all that Jesus has been teaching, they did this because they knew the Old Testament book of Malachi. Check this out, it's gonna come up here. In Malachi chapter four, verse five, is a prophecy saying, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so for centuries, like Jewish communities, they waited for Elijah, knowing that his reappearance would kind of lead into the Messiah coming. And the scribes at the time, who were the religious leaders, they they taught that Elijah would come first and then the Messiah would come. And if you look back to verse 11, the the disciples basically say, hey, we're confused, help us out with this. But if we look at the parallel passage in, in Matthew 17, in Matthew 17, 13, it says this, Matthew adds, the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. 
Okay, so John the Baptist was not the reincarnation of Elijah, but if we look to places like Luke chapter 1, verse 17, we know that Luke, or, uh, John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And so he came preparing the way for Jesus, and Jesus says, he's already come. John the Baptist has prepared the way, and they killed him. And this is what has to happen to me. Now look at verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him, this is Jesus, and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute and whenever, he sees, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and then look at this. And they were not able So as soon as they get off this mountain, guys, reality hits. They find themselves in the valley. There's suffering, there's demon possession, there's brokenness, there's helplessness. And there's this man there who his son is possessed by a demon. And while Jesus was on the mountain, the disciples, they couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't cast out this demon. And this crowd was arguing because likely the religious leaders were there and they were mocking Jesus, they were mocking his disciples and saying like, there's no real power here, Jesus is nobody, you guys are nobody, and they're arguing. And I'm not gonna get into demonology today, okay, but I need you to understand, not everything in our world with suffering and pain is because there's a demon, okay? My back hurts, it's not necessarily from a demon, I just live in a fallen world where sin is real and there's brokenness, okay? But we also need to understand, we can't just throw it out. You need to understand that there are two realms, but for God there's only one reality. There's the physical realm, which has human beings, and there's the spiritual realm, which has spirit beings, angels and demons. And the Apostle Paul speaks about this in Ephesians chapter six, where he kind of pulls back the, the curtain, and he says, hey, you just need to be aware that the demonic presence is real, and you're constantly encountering it and fighting it, and even Jesus, if you remember back to Mark chapter one, verse 12, when he's being tempted in the, in the desert, right? He's feeling this oppression. But this boy has this demon. They can't do anything about it. And then verse 19. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it often cast him into the fire and into water, to destroy him, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for, who, for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, and underline this, I love this, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that crowd, that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, because Jesus starts off in verse 19 with a lament in response to what he heard about the boy and his disciples' inability to help him. And as you look back at verse 19, this is not directed at the crowds. This is not directed at the faithless crowds, but it's directed at the disciples. 
And as Jesus lamented, he was not lamenting about the disciples' lack of power, but their lack of faith. See, the disciples, they had been with Jesus for some time. They've seen a lot of miracles. They've heard a lot of teachings. But still, here in Jesus' judgment, they lacked faith. Because here's the issue with the disciples. They were trying to do ministry without praying. They were trying to live a prayerless life, doing everything on their own, doing ministry on their own. And it just didn't work. They found themselves just failing. That they thought they had it. They're like, we got this. We don't, we don't need anything else. We got this on our own. And guys, how many of us, we attempt life at that? I got it. I'm strong enough. I got it. I'm intelligent enough. I got a degree. And we just go at it by ourselves. Guys, these, these men in this moment, they were faithless. And Jesus is calling it. They were prideful and they were self-reliant. They thought we can do this on our own. And so Jesus, he approaches this dad and he basically says, like, I can do it if you can believe. And I love the realness of this dad. He just says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And guys, Jesus heals this boy, but what I want you to see is, guys, we don't need perfect righteousness and perfect faith. We just need a repentant helplessness to access the presence and the power of God. Is that good news? The dad says, I'm not faithful. I struggle with doubts. I got my baggage. I can't find strength to do this, but please just help me. Doc, so this is saving faith. Faith in Jesus instead of ourselves. Because if you wait to come to God until you feel like you got your life all figured out and your faith is perfectly strong, you're never going to come to God. Jesus invites us to come as we are. And when we cry out and help, he meets us there. And as we see the disciples' inability in this instance, guys, it was due to their lack of dependence. They attempted life and ministry on their own. And that's why they ask him, like, hey, Jesus, why couldn't we do this? And Jesus says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And what he's saying is that this is not like some special type of demon, right? But he's helping them to learn that our faith can never be on autopilot. Do you know that? Because here is the posture of our lives. This is how we live our lives. And this is hard for a number of reasons. One, I've had a lot of knee surgeries and this hurts really bad. But two, it's really hard because we're all prideful. And we don't like to live on our knees. We love to stand up and puff out our chest and say, I got it. But what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples here is that we access the power of God when we humble ourselves before God and we talk to God and seek God. This is prayer. Jesus is saying, you couldn't do this because you weren't dependent on me. You thought too much of yourself. This is how we live. Guys, we don't walk around like peacocks. We walk around like sheep. Christian, you shouldn't prance into any room. You should limp into every room. This is the posture of a Christian, humble before Jesus, on our knees. And I wonder if this is why so many of us, we don't experience the presence and the power of God that frequently because we don't like being down here. We just like to live our lives up here. Guys, the glory and power on the mountain is experienced through prayer in the valley. Because imagine how different your life might be if you consistently met God in prayer 
and lived in the presence and the power of God through prayer. Here's the big idea. Being with Jesus on the mountain prepares and empowers us to live in the valley. So we meet with Jesus on the mountain in prayer. We experience his glory, his goodness, his power, and he empowers us to walk through the valleys faithfully, trusting him. So I have one application after all that. Pray. Pray. It's not just something that God's going to look at you and be like, oh, good job, Johnny. Thanks for praying. I really needed that. Here's a sticker. You have the gift of prayer to help you. And Jesus is trying to help us to see this. And so, guys, we're going to pray. I'm just going to tell you to pray. We're going to pray together. If you're new, this might be awkward, but this whole thing is probably awkward for you. Okay, so we're all good. But we don't want to just teach you to hear from God through his word. We want to teach you to talk to God and hear from God. Like, this is prayer. It's communication and communion with God. And this isn't a book that we just read, but it's a book that we can actually pray. And when we pray, we encounter the presence and the glory and the power of God to push us through so we can have that peak-type power in the everyday stuff of our lives. And so whatever you got to do to get comfortable, we're going to pray for the next few minutes. There's going to be a passage up here, Isaiah 41. We're just going to pray through this. If you're like, I don't know how to do that, start by reading, and then I'll walk you through it, okay? But here's what the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 41. God says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So in this moment, just talk to the Father. Jesus says, the Father says, fear not. So as you pray and are talking to him, what is it right now that you're fearing? Just tell it to God. Bring it to him. Is it an issue with your finances? Just tell him, he knows. Is there some sickness or some disease or something around the corner that is just making you frightened? Talk to him. Is it a relationship? Talk to the Father. Tell him. Guys, an issue are talking to God about those fears. Hear the voice of the Father. Say, fear not, for I am with you. God is with you. Our big brother Jesus, just picture him standing by you with his arm around your shoulder and being like, I hear you. I'm with you. I've overcome the world and I'm with you and just thank him for being with you.
fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Ask him for help. Remind yourself who our God is. And so you hear he's a father. Or maybe you picture Exodus 15, that he is a warrior and he's fighting for you. He's a helper. Ask him to be that for you. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you with my righteous right hand. If you're anything like this dad in Mark chapter 9, maybe you're struggling to believe that. And your situation seems way bigger than God. Ask him to help you with your unbelief. He says he will strengthen you. He will help you. He will uphold you. Ask him to do that for you in your life right now. Just say, be who you are. Be who you say you are. Let me trust you. So I want to leave you in this moment just to talk with the Father and just pray. And when you feel ready, We have communion set up in the corners of this room. And go take communion. Take the bread, remind yourself of Jesus' body being ripped apart for you. Dip it in the juice and remind yourself that his blood was shed for you and just thank him. And pray. Experience the presence and the power of God to push you through the valley of life. And if you're not a Christian, this is a point where you either just kind of stay put and just watch people take communion or you put your faith in Jesus today and take communion and celebrate and so whenever you're ready during these last two songs go take communion pray and we'll celebrate